Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Well, I have something to begin with. So do I. <laughs> you do too? Who's going first? You are. What happened to the ladies first thing? That's antiquated. And what do they say about age before beauty? Oh, that was good. <laughs> okay, I'll go first. I'm extraordinarily excited about the fact that we have our registration process smoothed out for the Michael Moorwood webinar that is coming up on August the 27th. And this morning, I got an email from Michael that I have not responded to yet saying that he's back from camping in the outback. And they had several weeks of glorious weather and then he's really looking forward to the webinar so i'm going to arrange to have a one-on-one -on -one with michael coming up uh sometime in the next couple of days and then we're going to have another dress rehearsal with him and then on the 27th we're going live with the webinar and i am in our class on sunday i'm quoting michael and uh, Michael's book, Remembering Jesus. And if people have not a clue who I'm talking about, I want to invite them to go onto the Ordinary Life website and under resources, there is uh, a resource called My Encounter with Michael Morewood. And in that little blog that I wrote, there is a link to three interviews that he had on progressing spirit that uh, I just think are absolutely must reads. So I really, I really do uh, want people to read those and yeah. know how valuable a resource, not only he is, but people like you and Ilya Delio and other people who can speak to us about our new understandings of science and cosmology and biology and all the things that are causing us to rethink our um, rethink everything. Yeah, what I'll do when, when I post the summary of this podcast is I'll put a link to that page in the summary so that folks can just click on it and access information about Michael Morewood and even his previous talk that he gave in Ordinary Life. Um, he's right in line with a little bit about what we were talking about um, last week, which is how this scientists who can hold mystery, who can hold um, unknown and the possibility that not everything is answerable by material and equation, right? Um, are helping bridge the gap. Mm -hmm. Religion that is um, creating a deeper evolutionary story where humans are not special or other than or uh, the only creatures from God, right? But that can embrace a, a, a long evolutionary story. Those are the folks that we need to come together to sort of create and imagine this path forward where it comes to the future of religion, I think, the future of spirituality. Uh, I, I am uh, also currently rereading, and it's just so amazing how things just fall together in synchronicity. Richard Rohr's daily meditations right now are on order, disorder, and reorder. Mm -hmm. And uh, you and I are going to start talking about the teachings of Jesus this week. 
And I'm thinking that even here, the new cosmology is giving us such a, um, I don't know, foundation, um, some impetus really to rethink the Jesus story in light of what we now know. I was thinking based on what I was reading today in uh, another book by Rohr called The Divine Pattern, it's going to take a new way of thinking for us to get beyond um, how we normally have dealt with issues of social justice in this country. And one of the things that Rohr was talking about is that Jesus gives a model in the, in the Jesus narrative because all of the resurrection stories talk about a new way of dealing with things. Jesus did not in any of those stories come back and beat the snot out of the people who had done bad things to him. He didn't retaliate. He didn't criticize or condemn even his own followers who abandoned him in that time. He showed a pattern for a different way to deal with injustice. And so we're going to talk about that. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm really pretty juiced up about it. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, Jesus gives us lots of fodder for the imagination, lots to talk about, even when it comes to conflicting images of Jesus, right, and who we, how we associate with Jesus uh, moving into this path. Um, I was listening to a podcast that uh, Cleve Tinsley forwarded to me between Cornell West. He has said this for some time, you know, Cornell West is a critical thinker, a race theorist, and really really thinks critically about society. You know, he's, he's, he's got a lot of really strong opinions and a lot of really great ones. He, he was talking about love as a form of death, right? And that's like the, the quintessential piece of the Jesus story is that we, we must die to one thing in order to learn how to love with a wide, with, as we named our talk the other day, with, with hearts as wide as the world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so actually what I wanted to start off with is a little bit what, you know, kind of what we're dancing around. You sent an email um, asking, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think the word Jesus? And I wanted to hear your answer, if it's not a spoiler. <laughs> uh, the, the, the question that I ask is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a test, and the test is this. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to honestly give me your first, the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear it. If it's a thought, uh, I want to know that thought. If it's an image, I want to know that image. If it's an emotion, I want to know that emotion, okay? You ready? Ready. Jesus. Jesus. Well, <laughs> if I'm answering... Truthfully. My cheeky answer is the first thing I think of is, is a bit of a swear word. Um, how we use Jesus yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's what, yeah. But I also like, I want to be a little bit real about that because, and I'm not trying to dismiss or be funny about swearing. I do have a bit of a mouth on me, but I also think that that's kind of a form of prayer. It's a bit of an anguish, right? Like we say that in anguish. We don't say it in, um, celebration, you know, so that gets into a whole thing about what do we only call upon Jesus in anguish or in that sort of like frustration and help me, you know, moment. So why is it that, you know, Jesus is a swear word? 
why is it said in that moment of anguish and anger? Well, you know, Anne Lamott says that there are three prayers that we make yeah. on a regular basis, and they are please, help, and thank you. And I think that um, the, the Jesus Christ as a square word has been for, for centuries used to express disgust and displeasure and anger and upset. And it's also kind of a plea mm -hmm. for uh, some sort of intervention to deal with a situation that is beyond me. Right. So that, that I have been pleasantly surprised by the positive responses that I have gotten back from people. Yeah. There have been there have been some people who said um, that the image that comes back what when they hear the word what comes to mind for them is Solomon's image of the head of Christ that painting mm -hmm. and we're going to talk about that on um, Sunday and I'm going to replay on Sunday we're going to replay the uh, white Jesus video that was done by the BBC yeah it's very brief but boy is it so telling yeah well, there's also, I think this, when I, when I sink a little deeper into hearing the word Jesus, I think one of the first emotions that comes to mind is constricted. And I think what I mean by that is that I think we've constricted Jesus. There was a song we used to sing at camp when I was a kid that said, um, if I had a little blue box, I'd put my Jesus in. I'd take him out and hug his neck and share him with my friends. But Jesus, that, that's such a telling metaphor. We have put Jesus in a box. Right. And, and that is, we've made Jesus this personal Jesus that sits on our shoulder in our pocket. And I don't ever think that Jesus was meant to be a personal Jesus. Do you think so? I do. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, and we'll begin with this on Sunday. I think that, that the most telling question in all of the Jesus narrative is the question that is put into Jesus' mouth by later disciples. I do not believe that he himself ever asked this question. I don't believe the historical Jesus ever asked this question. And, you know, eventually, Holly, we're probably going to have to get into some talking about how the, the scriptures were created in the first place. But it, it, anyway, the question in the Jesus narrative is, who do you say that I am? <laughs> and I think there's a corollary to that question that is profoundly important. And that is, who is the you who answers that question? Mm -hmm. And there, there's um, a lifetime of work to be done on either side of that equation. Now, let me tell you why I think Jesus never, the historic Jesus never said that. When, when Jesus was hanging out with the disciples and apostles, they didn't think in terms, he didn't think in terms about, oh my, I came down out of heaven from God to save people from their sins, to open the gates of heaven so that when people died, they could go to heaven. He didn't think like that. He thought about issues of social justice, about hunger, about compassion, 
about healing people in distress. It was only after his death and the, the experience that people had remembering him that they created these stories about him. And the, the great question that Michael Moore would raise is in his book about Jesus, but you and I have had the experience of being with Michael, so we know that one of his themes is rethinking everything. Right. You know, and, and so, he, for example, uh, what, how would Jesus want to be remembered? And what are we asking people to imagine when we are asking them to take seriously the life and teachings and death of Jesus? Mm -hmm. what, are we, what are we asking people to imagine? Mm -hmm. And sadly, I think what the church has been guilty of is telling people that they didn't have to imagine anything. All they had to do was believe ABC and everything was taken care of. And when you die, you go to heaven and that's it, mm -hmm. which has made the church complicit in some of the great evils and injustices in the world. We have learned to believe in Jesus rather than to do Jesus, I would say. Right. So I'm not clear, though, when you say um, you, that you do believe that Jesus, there is such sort of a thing as a personal Jesus. What, what do you mean by that? Is, is that what you mean when you say... Who is the you who's answering that question that we're looking for? Um, how are we transformed as an individual by the Jesus message? And that's the sort of individual relationship to Jesus or where I'm coming from is like, I think we need to get out of this box of Jesus Christ as individual personal savior. Well, uh, I, I believe that too, but again, I'm, going to lean a little bit on Michael Moorwood, but um, mm -hmm. people are getting the benefit of my dog who's protecting me. <laughs> um, we can't have a personal relationship to an abstract idea. Got it. Yeah. And so Moorwood and um, my spiritual director, for example, would talk about relating to Jesus as a companion, as somebody who can travel along with us. I know this is a creative imagination mm -hmm. exercise, mm -hmm. but somebody who understands and travels along with us, showing us a way to be. Right. And the way that we learn that is by going into his teachings and imagining this man so hungry, physically hungry, that he pled for just enough bread for today, please. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's what I mean by that. That yeah. we, we, we have to work at getting at an understanding of the historical Jesus so that we can have this um, what Carl Jung would call, or Robert Johnson would call, creative imagination relationship right. Right. with this archetypical figure that um, exists in uh, Western world, Western consciousness. Jesus is probably the best known historic figure in the West. Ever. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, maybe there's like a close second to Plato or Socrates or 
you know, <laughs> but it's, it, there's definitely, and you can, and actually, you know, Platonism really informed early Christianity. Um, Platonism oh. was already talking about sort of mind and spirit. Absolutely. The good is up here and the, and the mundane is down here. And so we, that sort of way of philosophizing or thinking set early Christianity up for further dualism. When in fact, I think, yeah, go ahead. We can blame Paul for that. Yeah, way to go, Paul. You know, it, it, people are not aware of the fact that this one that gets a status of being the church's first theologian never himself met Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right. Talks a lot about him. Right. But um, ne never met him. And, you know, one of the issues that I want to raise, so we are coming to uh, have this great, apocalypse you call it an unveiling of the systemic racism that has been in this country's history from the very beginning well and i think many people have at an intellectual level known this but we have created a god and a jesus and a religion that uh fits as you put it in our box <laughs> And so the images that people have when I say, what image comes to mind when you hear the word Jesus? I will be willing to bet you that 99.9% .9 of the people who answer that have an image of a white Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we now know from forensic anthropology we have a pretty good idea of what the historic Jesus looked like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he was a dark-skinned, kinky-haired, um, Middle Eastern person. And I wonder, Holly, if the depictions of Jesus by artists across the ages had been that Jesus was a dark-skinned, swarthy-looking mm -hmm. person, if people would be so welcoming to him in the West, if Western people would be so welcoming to him. Right. So maybe that's sort of the greatest unveiling of all. Hey, you say you've welcomed me into your heart. Guess who I really am? Yeah. And what it pushes, I would say, white Christians in America to do is to examine what am I willing and who am I willing to accept at my table? Right. Is it this, you know, is it this image of, of Jesus that is probably more accurate than and, the one that I grew up seeing? And what does that say about me? And what does that say? About me. I'm thinking about these two words, and this is, I'm, I want to give credit where credit is due. This is straight from Brian Swim's mouth in, in lectures and um, in spaces that I've been in with him, is the cosmos operates, and I use this phrase a lot in an autonomous and embedded reality. And, you know, when I ask, is there a personal Jesus? As I'm thinking and processing your answer, I'm thinking, why do, why does that even that need to be binary? Jesus isn't either a personal relationship or a collective relationship. It's both. It's the autonomous and embedded nature of reality that Jesus really spoke to, which is work on the self. Who do you say, who is the you that's saying who you think that I am? Who are you? 
Right. And then who are you in this body, in this collective body? And how are you going to participate in the liberation and transformation of the collective body? So it's funny that just even in talking, because I, I, I think that I have this like knee-jerk reaction to the uh, Jesus Christ as personal savior. That messaging, I think, did harm to my spiritual development. And yet, if I can learn to see it with more metaphor, with more nuance, with more creative imagination, I can hold it with the also embedded nature of who Jesus is. So let, let's go back about two, two and a half years. I mm -hmm. think that's probably about when I began the emphasis on between the no longer and the not yet. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong about that, but it, it's, it's somewhere in that two year period. And I, I said that, um, and of course, all of this thinking has been profoundly influenced, start, first starting with Ilya Delio. Right my encounter with Ilya and my falling in love with her. <laughs> and um, then um, the readings that I got in, involved with because of that, Daramut Amurku, mm -hmm. I think I got that right. And um, he's written a number of things on evolution and so forth. And I got to the point of understanding that there were two pivotal things that we had to embrace to be able to go forward. And one was what I call the end of cosmological dualism. There's no out there to get to. Mm -hmm. you can't separate nothing. Mm -hmm. My mother wouldn't approve of that English construction, but you can't separate anything, anyone. Right. We're all part of a whole. And the second major thing hits on what you just talked about, and that is the absolute necessity to end the emphasis on individual salvation. Right. Yeah. And, and those two things. Now, let's go back and talk about Jesus in light of that. And that's what we're going to do. How would uh, Jesus, of course, lived in a pre-Copernican worldview and all of the doctrines that have been created about him were thought about like that. So people who have embraced and tried to follow Christian teachings in the West have inherited this cosmological dualism and individual salvation for decades and decades and decades. It's been all we've known. I think about St. Paul's. Centuries and centuries and centuries. <laughs> centuries and centuries. I, I think about St. Paul's. We have this this wonderful, I think, church and very important liturgy. I, we can talk about that sometime too. Um, the importance of liturgical and ritual stuff to help us do in the inner world what we need to do in the outer world. We can't do it out there unless we've first done it inside our own hearts and minds. But we can have a a a, a sermon that is as up-to-date in terms of what we know about the cosmology as we have right now, and then immediately after that, we stand and affirm a creed that was written in a pre-Copernican world. I believe God the Father, you know, the Holy Spirit came down, Jesus went up, 
and it just it, it's all it it gives people the wrong notion or the wrong understanding of of the sacred right and then we stay in that three-tiered universe um and that's what you know this the i love this professor of mine rick tarnas who talks about the the evolution from sort of a compact cosmology where there was more seamlessness between humans and the natural world, humans and the mysterious sacred world where, you know, he uses the example often of the Abor Australian Aboriginals who can just sort of, it's almost like just reaching and calling forth the ancestors and they're right there and they answer and talk in real time. They hear the voices of nature, they hear the voices of uh, animals and those inform their sort of patterns uh, in a daily way, right? We, we separated from that compact cosmology and began to put all the power of kind of taking us toward God in the hands of a priest or the hands of a, of a male leader. Um, and that became a sort of pyramid, pinnacle type of, um, type of cosmology. You can get through this mm -hmm. narrow gate. And what really I think Jesus does is Jesus says, uh-uh-uh, erase that hierarchy. It's all here. You have access to, you have access to sacred mystery. It is right here. I think that's essentially what the, the metaphor of incarnation does is say that we live in an incarnated reality. And this incarnated reality is the one that we need to transform. It's not transforming the self to get up there. It's becoming who you truly are to participate in this incarnational reality. And that is, that is the gift of like, if I want to say I've been remembering who Jesus is through learning from you, through learning about cosmology, through my own spiritual practice, I want to remember Jesus to incarnational reality. Right. You know, the story that's been created in the minds of most Western church attending people is something like this. Jesus um, was executed, and uh, three days later, he rose from the dead, and 40 days later, he ascended into heaven, and 50 days after that, the Holy Spirit came down and created the church. That's the story. None of that happened. Not that way. <laughs> Jesus was executed. A community gathered in memory of Jesus. And those people who gathered in memory of Jesus were Jews. They went back into their synagogues and they struggled with trying to incorporate Jesus into their understanding of their Jewish religion. It took 30 at least 30 years after the death of Jesus for the documents to be produced. Mm -hmm. 30 years. Yeah. Most people can't remember what happened two weeks ago. Yeah. Much less what happened 30 I mean, years yeah, ago. Other than like a very pointed memory that sticks up out above the rest. And even then you can't name the day, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really, yeah. All right. Yeah. So, um, Shelby Spong has convinced me, and I talked to a professor of New Testament uh, at Rice University some time ago about this, and uh, there is now a 
a theory that is gaining some momentum in biblical scholarship uh, about how the Jews shaped the Jesus story to fit their Jewish liturgical mm -hmm. calendar. Mark covers six months of the Jewish calendar. Matthew and Luke extended mm -hmm. to 12 mm -hmm. over the whole year. So in this three chapter segment that we're gonna tackle in Matthew, which is also in, in Luke, but in a shorter, different version, what was Matthew trying to do? And, and what, what that narrative is trying to demonstrate is that Jesus was the new Moses mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. leading his people out of bondage in Egypt into a new land of freedom and love. Mm -hmm. And that one of the turning points in the story of Moses is that he goes up on a mountain and receives the Ten Commandments. So fast forward to the creation of the Jesus story. He goes up on a mountain and, and delivers the new commandments. Uh, Richard Orr calls it Jesus' plan for the new world. And so Jesus is the new Moses who throughout the Sermon on the Mount keeps saying, you have heard it said, and he quotes the Jewish law, but I say to you, and he gives a reinterpretation of it. So um, this to me is exciting stuff. It is. And I just had a, a, a I want to even take liturgical to both Jewish and what became Christian liturgy. Even at, we, we sometimes even box that in as the sort of evolution of truth, if you will. That is part of a much wider cosmology of truth. And as Sarah Grant wrote. Um, it wasn't the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because it was the way. The way the way has existed as long as there has been a cosmos. And so even this story, even this chunk of time in which the, the right. Bible spans from the Hebrew scriptures to the New Testament is still just a chunk of time within the wider cosmos. Right. And so yeah. what I think we can do, Bill, this is, I, I'm sort of feeling excitement around what I'm about to say, and it might not drop as powerfully as I'd like for it to, but you know, Aristotle called God the unmoved mover. Right. God is fixed. What this story does, if we allow it, is say, uh-uh, it is evolving. It is not static. It is not still. It is continually evolving. And what the Jesus story allows us to do, and if I'm going on that metaphor of incarnational reality, it allows us to become part of that evolution. Absolutely. And, yeah. and so again, I said, you know, I got started on this with uh, hearing Ilya Delio, those four words that she uses to describe God, evolving, entangled, expanding, and creative. And uh, I want to be clear that we're talking about just one mythic strand Right. here when we yeah. talk about the judeo-christian tradition That's right. there are other very valid mythological ways of understanding how to be in the cosmos we just happen to speak this one that's right this is the language we grew up speaking kind of 
Yeah, yeah. And you framed that so well for us who have been attendees of Ordinary Life over the years. Um, I think this is a moment, I think, to honor that and give gratitude for the expansiveness that you've created in that little room. Yeah. <laughs> that our minds have been able to go beyond that and have been able to embrace a story that is so much bigger, more energetic, not static that is still evolving, that is still expanding. And, you know, I think this is that when, when I think about sort of philosophers of religion, that those who see religion as an expansive practice, not as necessarily a dead practice or as, you know, not the opium of the masses is of course one perspective, but the other perspective, and this is a more mystical tradition, is that removing religion from the out there and again, I keep going back to this, the incarnational reality of spirit and evolution. And that is, to me, the most powerful thing about where we are with sort of modern consciousness and modern tools to learn about the cosmos mm -hmm. is that our consciousness is in the process of expanding right now based on what we're learning, what we know, what we know is out there beyond this planet and how that interacts with, with us, you know? So I, I won't. I don't want what I'm about to say sound self-serving in any way, but I, it do. It's an anecdote about how I think we evolve and change. Um, I have mentioned many times over the years that it is not uncommon for me to have someone come up to me after class. We don't do this anymore because we don't gather, yeah. and say something like, <clears throat> "Do they know what you're teaching here?" Mm -hmm. Or you mm -hmm. couldn't teach this in my church, yeah. which is so sad to me. And I wonder, you know, why that, why that is mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah. Yesterday I got interviewed by a young man who's doing some research uh, of his own on religious education and the curriculum. Cool. And he asked me, uh, he said, how did you come to be so very open about things? And the thing that popped in my mind was I had a personal relationship with a black woman when I was four years old that changed my life. I mean, I fell in love with someone that the South told me I couldn't fall in love with. Yeah. And that woman was kind of a surrogate mother to me. And um, I, I grew up knowing oh, what they're telling me about race is not the truth. Right. And that led me to question everything. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that we can both sort of point to formative um, moments like that. Mine is very different, but it is. Whatever it is, and this goes back to the little song, it took us out of our box. Yeah. Whatever that is that made us question the reality that was presented to us, took us out of the box and let us see a different reality. And, and, and I don't know why some become curious about that reality and some become fearful about that another reality. I, I, that's what I'd love to get to the heart of is what is it in our lives, in our personality structures, in our own trauma and in our own grief and pain that does not allow us to see that, that the box doesn't help. Right, the, but the box just keeps us 
only in the autonomous reality as opposed to in the embedded reality. And I don't have an answer for why some, why it almost seems to be divided like in half, why some are fearful of opening the box and some are not. I don't have an answer for that either. I've heard various things. Richard Orr says that he thinks it's because the predominant personality in the West on the Enneagram is a six, which is a fearful personality. And, you know, mm -hmm. things that we're afraid of, we fear that we need to defend ourselves against or we need to change those things. Um, probably the most frequent phrase in the entire Jewish Christian collection of writings is fear not, do not be afraid. And as we get deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to find Jesus saying it over and over. What are you frightened about? What are you scared of? Uh, don't you have faith? Don't you trust? Yeah. And do you think that being afraid does anything for you? Does it make you taller? Can it change the color of your hair? And I mean, he's pretty well got it nailed. And if, you know, it, there's no, there's no need to fear. Yeah. So I'm a six on the Enneagram. Um, I'm a counterphobic six on the Enneagram, which as I understand my own personality means that I, I, I experience a fear and instead of running away, I dive into it and go, what is this about? <laughs> and so, you know, and I, I remember once you saying that this, this journey of investigating God, of knowing self, of, um, this of investigating sacred mystery, it, that it is safe, that you will be kept safe. And that's where I think my sickness shows up. I'm like, mm -mm, I don't think it's safe because I, I think safe, I associate with status quo. Um, safe that is associated with kind of, you can stay in your box and you can still grow. I actually think that this, this journey of transformation is not safe. It's wild. <laughs> and uh, adventurous and full of grief at times. Let, letting something about what you believe to be true die so that you can lean into something new, lean into something else. And, and, and when I think about that, there's nothing safe about that. But you will be held. I, something that you said made me have a memory of a book that was written back in the 60s or 70s mm. by a colleague of mine. It's called The Taste of New Wine. Mm -hmm. And it's built on that story of Jesus where he says, you don't put new wine into old wineskin. Mm -hmm. And there's something about this Jesus and his teachings that is heady mind-altering stuff mm -hmm. and uh, it also causes a celebration and uh, it causes new things to come into being and um, that can make people anxious I suppose yeah <clears throat> yeah there's um I think anytime we're sort of like being asked to shift being asked to think of a different perspective there's probably a little fear that arises. We, you know, when I, I was thinking about what we are going to talk about this Sunday, and I have been thinking about Jesus from the lens of transformer and liberator. And transformation 
doesn't mean to me changing who you are, but creating space to become who you are meant to be. Right. So we go back, we go back to when we ask the question, uh, who do you say that I am? You cannot answer that without also wrestling with the corollary. Who is to you who answers that question? And that, and the, the answer keeps changing, right? Yeah, of course. That's what I was going to say is like when I, I would have answered that question very differently when I was 12 sure. to when I was, um, when I was in my early twenties, I was ready to just be like, uh, uh-uh, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to be part of a church. I don't want to be, you know, I just, I, my experience up to that point had been narrow. And then of course, when I, I started reading other narratives and learning from you and being in, engaged in a different way, I could go, oh, this narrative isn't actually meant to be restrictive. This re- narrative is meant to be expansive. And it, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm just grateful that, because, I, because it is really hard to let go of, let's say if we were told when we were 18 that we could no longer speak English, it just wasn't the language that we could speak. We had to learn a new language. It doesn't matter which one, but you could no longer speak English. It's the same way when you grow up with a certain belief, right? How that if that if you run into a place where that belief doesn't work for you, it is and it, it feels like you want to reject it. It's like saying, well, you can't speak this language anymore. And then we find, well, maybe we're a little more fluent in a new language than we think we are. So in a way, it's like just learning how to speak a new language about Jesus than the one that the dominant Western Christian narrative, white Western Christian narrative taught. Um, I imagine that there are other folks, uh, people of color, black churches, um, who maybe didn't have the white Jesus narrative, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. who had the liberator Jesus narrative. Right. Yeah. Right. What most of us have grown up with is what uh, one person calls white American male folk religion. Yeah. Yeah. And all of those descriptors restrict the understanding of Jesus quite dramatically. Yeah. So I found a poem that is by David White that I would love to read that I think is kind of an invitation in thinking about who is Jesus. (laughs) It's called Easter Blessing, and it was written for John O'Donohue. They were apparently dear friends. The blessing of the morning light to you. May it find you even in your invisible appearances. May you be seen to have risen from some other place you know and have known in the darkness and that carries all you need. May you see what is hidden in you as a place of hospitality and shadowed shelter. May that hidden darkness be your gift to give. May you hold that shadow to the light and the silence of that shelter to the word of the light. May you join all of your previous disappearances with this new appearance, this new morning, this being seen again, new and newly alive. Wow, that's beautiful. That is where what I like to think when I first hear the word Jesus, becoming new and newly alive. Mm-hmm. By the way, I, I, I don't want to get off of this podcast without doing two things. 
Okay. Uh, one is acknowledging that yesterday was a truly historic day in American political culture. Yes. Where yeah. an yeah. African American Asian female was uh, selected to be vice president candidate along with yeah. Joe Biden. Yeah. Regardless of your political uh, persuasions, that's a that's a monumental moment. Yeah. Do you think that just a hundred years ago we had this cultural belief that women shouldn't vote? Yep. <laughs> quite, quite, quite a shift. Yeah. We still have a long way to go, but that's quite a shift. And also, before we get off today, um, I just want to remind people again, go on the Ordinary Life website, go under events, find the more wood link to register um, for this upcoming webinar, which is two weeks from now. Just two weeks from now. Yeah, I'll post it in the summary just to make sure people can, you know, click on it easily. And so let, let me let me uh, ask you a question. Um, if somebody registers, they're going to get a, a link back from the platform that we're using, which is Zoom webinar program. They have to hang on to that email, right? Yes. Put it in your calendar. Yeah. Yeah. And we've fixed all the glitches. So if you've registered and, and didn't have a Zoom account, you can now register regardless of whether you have a Zoom account. No difficulty so. whatsoever. Right. Been tested yeah. out. Yeah. So here we are. I'm excited for are. that and thanks for this conversation. It always helps get me thinking about what we're going to do. And, and in two weeks, our guest is going to be Dr. Jeff McDonald, uh, senior pastor of yeah, St. Paul's. And really he can catch us that. up on what's going on with the United Methodist. And when he accepted the invitation to be here, I told him to get prepared because when we were on the air, I was going to ask him for a raise. <laughs> All right. All right. Love you, Love Holly. You I'm glad we did this. You too. Thanks, Bye-bye.